Let's open our Bibles to where Paul was reading earlier. 2 Corinthians 12, we're looking at the first six verses. I've entitled uh, the message this morning, The Third Heaven and the New Jerusalem. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 6. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, how he caught me up to paradise and heard inexpressible words which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, Yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool. For I will speak the truth, but I forbear lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. Now as we've been making our way uh, through 2 Corinthians, (coughs) excuse me, um, Paul is um, attempting to minister to a minority of those in Corinth in the church because they refused to accept his authority as an apostle. And um, Paul, throughout 2 Corinthians, has been using many different examples of his authority that the Lord gave to him. Um, Let me just refresh your memory a little bit. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. For example, in 2 Corinthians 2, 1 through 9, Paul's appeal to this group is to forgive. And um, they weren't doing that. It's in reference to the letter that was written by Paul about this person in the church who was um, having an ongoing affair and everybody knew about it. And so Paul wrote a letter saying, look, I'm not there. But um, um, in the name of the Lord, I want you to kick the guy out because a little leaven leavens a whole lump. And that's what was taking place. Everybody knew, but nobody was doing anything about it. So Paul writes this very firm letter And um, the majority adhered to it. And the good news is, as we get into 2 Corinthians, is the guy actually does repent. And and he's, Paul's telling them, I want you to not only bring this guy back in the church, but I want you to make sure you love on him. Um, Remember that you've sinned, your sins have been forgiven, he sinned, his sins are now forgiven, so make sure you, you don't treat them um, in a way that it would not be appropriate. So in chapter two, that's his appeal to this minority group that had an attitude against Paul. In other words, who does Paul think he is anyway? Telling us what to do and not to do. So he appeals to them to forgive the guy. Uh, Chapter five, um, he reminds them that we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 
If you're here this morning, you've given your life to the Lord. Uh, This is not a judgment that has anything to do with your sin, but just, um, it's called the Bema Seat Judgment. Uh, It comes from the Olympics, where they would give out um, one of those wreaths as a, a reward for running the race in the Olympics. And that's what the Bema Seat is about. Uh, why you do what you do. It says both good and bad, so some people get confused there a little bit because it uses the word good or bad. But what that really means is why you did, what was the motive in your heart that you were doing for the Lord? Was it so that you could be seen or that you could be recognized? Well, Jesus has said, then you, if you do it before men, you already have, you already have your reward. So, in chapter five, he's using, look, you're gonna have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And this minority, you've been forgiven, but you're not forgiving him. In chapter six, if you're taking notes, 14 through 18, he appeals not to be unequally yoked with non-believers. And um, here the idea was um, uh, not to be unequally yoked with the person who had committed uh, the sexual sin. In chapter seven, um, he has not yet been to Corinth, but he sends Titus, and Titus brings back good news about the majority that have received the letter. So chapter seven is more up-tempo, um, Titus is giving a good report, makes um, Paul feel glad. He says, I, I found I no pleasure at all in having to write this letter. Matter of fact, it grieved me that I had to write it, but I'm glad I did write it because it brought forth the desirable fruit of repentance. So that's chapter seven. Chapter 10, verse 10 is they had an attitude about Paul. Um, They didn't like the way he looked and they did not like the way he talked. He didn't look right and he didn't speak right. So evidently they were judging by an outward appearance and um, Paul corrects them um, to this rebellious minority that you don't judge by outward appearance because God looks at the heart. Now, Last, um, last time we were talking about the, um, Paul's, Paul's using all these means to try to get through to the people. Last week we talked about God's love for them, so instead of uh, strongly reproving them, he tries a little bit different angle, and he talks about the love of God. And he says, look, God loves you guys, and don't you know that you're going to be the bride of Christ, that probably right after the the Bema Seat judgment, there's gonna be a wedding that takes place, and he's telling this group in Corinthians, you're the bride of Christ. So he comes at him from that angle. Now this week, uh, keeping with the theme that he's approaching them from different angles, trying to get his message through that he does have authority to have written this letter, And this week, um, to show his apostleship, his calling from the Lord, 
we read these six verses in chapter 12 where he actually goes to heaven. And we read here that uh, it's called the third heaven. And you go, what is the third heaven? (laughs) Well, the first heaven we refer to as um, watching birds fly around or whatever. And then we talk about the heavens. Um, uh, As far as the universe is concerned, I would consider that the second one. Well, the third heaven is the one that Paul is referring to here where he says when he, what really gets me here because we're going to be going and showing the other places what he doesn't mention here. What he mentions here is what he heard, which always surprised me because you'd think he'd talk about what he saw. But he said whatever, he said when I was caught up to paradise, paradise, and I heard inexpressible words. In other words, I can't put it into to words what I, what I heard. Um, it's not possible. There's no earthly way to communicate what I heard when I was in heaven. So um, with that, um, it says 14 years earlier. Well, 14 years earlier would take us back, this is um, 56 A.D., Right around 48 AD, around that time, Paul would have been uh, in the city of Lystra. So if you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, I'm looking at verses 19 and 20. We read, Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, where Lystra, we know that because of verse 6, And having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Why? I actually believe he was dead and that he came back to life. However, when the disciples gathered around him, I think the Lord performed a miracle. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and others he's raised from the dead. And rose up and went into the city, and in the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. Well, we read, I know a man 14 years ago. In the body, out of the body, I don't know. I really believe the Apostle Paul had an out-of-body experience during that time where he really was dead, before he was brought back to life. He was taken to the third heaven, And um, I did the math on this, and it's right around 14 years ago. And so I believe that he actually had this out-of-body experience, that he saw heaven. Now, everybody here (laughs) has talked to somebody or heard a story from somebody that has had an out-of-body experience. And sometimes it goes something like this. Well, I saw myself from the ceiling. I was actually looking down and I could actually see myself. And then I was taken, and they t- usually they talk about this tunnel with light at the end of it, and they're making their way to it. And then, for whatever reason, um, they're resuscitated, and um, they come back to life, and those are usually the stories that you've heard. What I'm about to 
share with you this morning is what about a person who's not born again or saved? We very seldom ever hear a story about somebody saying I had an out-of-body experience and went to hell. And um, because the way Dr. Rawlings in his book To Hell and Back refers to it as getting an F on your report card. You're usually not proud to bring home, hi dad, I got an F in mathematics. You usually don't want to talk about such things. What did you do so wrong that you went to hell? What did you do? Well, the first thing I want to tell you is I'm going to play Dr. Rawlings. You can Google this. I did. And um, there's just story after story on YouTube about people who have had an after-death experience and have gone to hell. And I'm going to take 10 minutes this morning and give you one, show you one testimony. And um, the point that I made on at men's prayer was you can be a nice guy, you can be a nice gal, and still go to hell. Want to give me an amen or not? You can be a really nice guy. You go to church, you can be a really nice gal, full of good works, and still not make it to heaven because you must be born again. So what you're about to see is a 10-minute testimony. I'm going to go back and watch it myself um, because... I can stand up here and tell you, but when you actually hear the guy's personal experience, it's pretty powerful. So with that, I'll be back. And um... It's like being um, in a beehive, just hundreds of them all over me. And I eventually was just laying on the ground there, all ripped up, um, pain everywhere, inside, outside. And even harder to bear than the physical pain was the emotional pain of what had just happened to me. The utter degradation that I just experienced. You know, I never once felt that it was um, unjust or wrong. I heard my voice. It wasn't somebody else's voice, it wasn't the voice of God or anything, it was my voice. And I heard it speak, but I didn't speak it. So whether it's the voice of my conscience or, I don't know what it was, it was just, but I distinctly heard my voice say, pray to God. And so I thought to myself, I don't believe in God. Pray to God. And I'm thinking, even if I could pray, I don't know how to pray anymore. I haven't prayed. And at that time, I probably hadn't prayed in 22, 23 years, so. So I'm thinking, like when, when, when I was a child and we said prayers in Sunday school and we said prayers in church, and what did we say? And I'm trying to think of, the, I'm trying to think of it because the, to me, to pray was to recite something that I'd learned. That's what, it, that's what I thought a prayer was. Then. So I'm, let's say, the Lord is my shepherd. Um, give us this day our daily bread. My country, tis of thee. No, that's not a prayer. That's wrong. Um, Let's see, yea, though I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, four score and seven years ago, our forefathers. You know, I'm getting all of them mixed up. I can't remember how to pray. And then the people who are around me, if I, every time I'd like mention God, these people who had attacked me and beaten me, every time I'd mention God, it was as if mentioning God was throwing boiling water on them. They would shriek, they would scream, 
they would yell and in worse profanity than, than anything I've ever heard in this world. The other thing that was happening was that they, they um, couldn't bear to be around me talking about God. It was, so, it was so painful for them to hear about God that they kept backing away, backing away, backing away. And so I had a sense that I could push them away by talking about God. And so I'm trying to remember prayers and I'm getting all confused and mixed up and it was just all um, crazy and I'm lying there and eventually I realize that they're gone and I'm alone. Now I was alone there for an eternity and what I mean by that was um, absolutely no sense of time to, but I thought about my life thought about what I'd done and what I hadn't done. I thought about the situation that I was in. And this, the conclusion that I came to was is that I had lived an entirely, my adult life, I had lived a selfish life. My only God in my adult life was myself. I realized that I was um, in something terribly, terribly wrong with my life and that the people that attacked me the same kind of people that I was. They were not monsters, they weren't demons. They were people who had missed it. The, the point of being born and being alive in this world. They had missed it and they had lived lives of selfishness and cruelty. And now we're in a world where there was nothing else. There was nothing but selfishness and cruelty and they were doomed to inflict that upon each other and upon themselves uh, probably forever and ever and ever and ever without end. Um, and now I was a part of it. And it seemed like, although I didn't want to be there, it seemed like probably the right place for me to be. There was a sense of like, this is what I deserve because this is what I lived. You can't imagine how emotionally painful that was. And I'm lying there for time without end thinking about my fate and in the back of my mind comes up an image of myself as a child sitting in a Sunday school classroom singing Jesus loves me. I could hear in my mind Jesus loves me la 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 Jesus loves me, la la. And as I recalled myself singing it and heard my, I could hear myself as a child singing it. More important than anything else was that I could feel it in my heart that there was a time in my life when I was young and innocent, when I believed in something good, when I believed in something other than myself, when I believed in someone who was all good, all powerful who really, really cared about me. And I knew that I wanted that back, that which I had lost, that I'd thrown away, that I'd betrayed. I, want, I wanted that back. That I didn't know Jesus, but I wanted to know Jesus. I didn't know his love, but I wanted to know his love. I didn't, I didn't know if he was real, but I wanted him to be real. You know, I mean, it was, it was all just because I trusted that there was a time in my life that I had believed in something
and that um, I knew I had known once as a child that it was true, and I wanted to trust that it was true. So I called out Jesus. to the darkness, Jesus, please save me. Please save me. And he came. He came. First, there was a tiny little speck of light in the darkness, and very rapidly got bright. And the light became so bright that um, if it were in this world, it would have, it would have consumed me. It, it just would have fried me to a crisp. But it wasn't at all hot or dangerous there. The light just came upon me. And he reached down. He was in this light. And he reached down out of this light and gently started to pick me up. And in his light, I could see that I was gore and filth and wounds all over. And was, I looked like roadkill. And he's gently putting his hands underneath me and, and very tenderly picking me up. And as he's touching me, everything just goes away. All the wounds, all the pain, all the dirt, just, just kind of like um, evaporated away. And I'm like whole and healed. And inside, uh, just filled with his love, which I wish I could be more articulate about. It's so frustrating not being able to tell people about it because, you know, it's the best thing that ever happened to me in my life. I mean, it's, it's like the, it's the everything, you know, it's the all of, of life is to know that love. And, you know, I get to it and I just can't describe it. I can't convey it to you. So he's holding me and embracing me, rubbing my back like a father would his son, like a mother would her daughter, just gently rubbing my back. And I'm bawling like a baby, out of happiness. I mean, like the the, the release, the, you know, having been lost and now been found, having been dead and now brought back to life, you know. And he's carrying me out of there. Up, we just go. Out, go on. And we're moving towards a world of light and... Uh, I began to have thoughts of tremendous shame that I've been so bad. So I'm, I thought of myself as dirt, garbage, filth. And I thought to myself, he's made a mistake. I don't belong here. He doesn't want me. You know, it's like. The shame of like how could he how could he care about me you know why me um, I'm bad and we stopped we weren't in hell we weren't in heaven we were in between and we stopped and he said we don't make mistakes you belong here what you just saw was one of a series of maybe ten or twelve different testimonies. Um, let me tell you a little bit about um, Dr. Rawlings. Um, he was, he's a cardiologist, but he was a non-believer until he would have somebody that had a life after death experience only explaining graphically 
with fear and torment as he would resuscitate them, um, they would talk about the graphic forms, the terrors of what hell is really about. That is how Dr. Rawlings got saved uh, because he began having these testimonies of people that actually had gone to hell. And as a result, he um, became a believer and um, um, I would encourage you to go online and, and just listen to some of the testimonies of people describing what hell is about. Now we're going to switch gears and go in the other direction and talk about what Paul saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he went to the third heaven. So I'm going to look at it from an Old Testament perspective. So let's go to the book of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, we'll look at the first seven verses. Chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, that's plural. Each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. And then I said, like this man here, woe is me, for I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand a live coal which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. Um, I think real humility and being a humble person can only be achieved when a person is aware of the presence of the Lord. It's a very humbling experience, just like what's happened here. When he was in the presence of the Lord, he became painfully aware just how much of a sinner he was, just like the guy that we just listened to. And this awareness of our, our unrighteousness really is manifested when you're in the presence of the Lord. And um, so here's one in Isaiah where it talks about the seraphim and um, them singing holy, holy, holy. Turn with me to the book of Ezekiel, chapter one. And we're actually gonna go through this chapter because it's one of the more in-depth description of um, heaven. Pick it up at verse four. The seraphim that we read about in Isaiah, we find that now Ezekiel, we just finished uh, Ezekiel Advance Prayer yesterday, and next Saturday we'll be starting the book of Daniel. 
But uh, here in the beginning of Ezekiel, chapter one, verse four, it says, then I looked and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north. A great cloud was of raging fire engulfed itself and brightness was all around and radiating out of its midst like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. Also from within it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. Uh, They had the likeness of a man. Each one had four faces and each one had four wings. Now individually, let us see again, individually just one of them had four faces. Uh, Their legs were straight and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. Uh, They sparkled like the color of burnished bronze. They had the hands of a man under their wings and on their four sides and each of the four had faces and wings. The wings touched one another. The creatures did not turn when they went, but each one went straight forward. As for the likeness of the faces, each had the face of a man. Each of the four had the face of a lion. On the right side, each of the face of an ox on the left side, and each had four had the face of an eagle. Thus were the faces, the, the rings, their wings were stretched upward. Uh, two wings of each one touched one another and two covered their bodies. Each one went straight forward. They went wherever the spirit wanted to go and they did not turn when they went. And as for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was the burning color of coals of fire and the the fire was going back and forth among the four living creatures. The fire was bright and out of the fire went lightning. That had to be quite a spectacle of the living creatures as they ran back and forth in the appearance like flashes of lightning. So what I want to what gets my attention here is it says each of them went straight, okay? And you got fire and lightning and smoke all happening at the same time, and each of them went straight. And it doesn't say they turned to the right or, or turned to the left. And um, verse 15, when I looked at the living creatures, behold, a wheel was on the earth besides each of the living creatures with It's four faces. Now plural, the appearance of the wheels and their works was like the color of beryl and the four had the same likenesses. Their appearance of their works was as it were a wheel in the middle of a wheel. Now now we're getting into territory that you have to use your imagination what's being said here. When they went, they went toward any of the one four directions and they did not turn aside when they went. And as for their rims, they were so high, they were awesome. And their rims were full of eyes all around the four of them. When the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. Wherever the spirit wanted to go, they went because there were, the spirit went and the wheels were lifted together with them for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. 
And when those went, these went. When those stood, these stood. When those were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up together with them. For the spirit of the living creatures, plural, was in the wheels. The likeness of the firmament above the heads of the living uh, creatures was like the color of awesome crystal stretched out over their heads. And under the firmament, their wings spread out straight, one towards the other. Each one had two which covered one side. Each one had two which covered the other side of the body. And when they went, I heard the noise of the wings, like the noise of many waters, like the voice of the Almighty, a tumult, like the noise of an army. And when they stood still, they let down their wings. And a voice came from above the firmament that was over their head whenever they stood, and they let down their wings. Now, these are the four creatures And now we're going to um, look at the throne in verse 26 through the end. And above the firmament over their heads was the likeness of a throne in appearance like a sapphire stone. Uh, On the likeness of the throne was the likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. We're told that we were made in the image of God. And here the one sitting on the throne had the appearance of a man. Also from the appearance of his waist and upwards, I saw, as it were, the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around within it and the appearance of his waist downward, I saw appearance of fire and brightness all around. Like the appearance of a rainbow and a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the likeness the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Um, So when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice of one speaking. Turn with me to chapter 10 of Ezekiel. I'm not going to read this whole chapter, but just the last couple verses because it's something that's repeated to Ezekiel. Basically now, um, Chapter 10 is about the departure of the glory of the Lord from the temple in Jerusalem. And um, so this is not a heavenly scene, but the glory of the Lord is departing. Let's pick it up in verse 20 because it describes the cherubim again in this chapter. So I won't repeat that. But he says in verse 20, Um, this is the living creature I saw under the God of Israel by the river Cherub. Okay, that would be what we read in chapter one. And I knew they were the cherubim. Each one had four faces and each one had four wings and the likeness of the hands of a man were under their wings and the likeness of their faces were the same as the faces which I had seen by the river Chabar their appearance and their persons, they each went straight forward. Again, we have this idea of of this continuing going straight forward. In chapter um, 11, verses 22 
to 24, we have another description of the glory of the Lord going to the Mount of Olives. This would have been where the temple was. It would have gone through what we call the Eastern Gate. And here is uh, described in chapter 11, verse 22. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings um, with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was high above them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city. So we're talking about Jerusalem. And stood on the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. Then the Spirit took me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to those in captivity. So this would have been, again, um, um, Ezekiel ministered to the people in Babylon in Babylon, Jeremiah wrote from Jerusalem. So now after he has this vision, uh, he goes to Babylon. And the vision that I had seen went up from me. And so I spoke to those in captivity of all the things the Lord had shown me. So here we have um, Old Testament pictures of what I would call heaven what I believe Paul doesn't talk about what he saw. So we go to the Old Testament and we actually have a description of what Ezekiel saw and Isaiah saw and um, I would refer to that as, as heaven. Now let's go to uh, the New Testament, uh, Revelation chapter four. The book of Revelation is divided into three different sections. Uh, The key verse to the book of Revelation is chapter 1, verse 19, where the Lord appears to John. Remember last week we were talking about all the disciples I read out of Fox's book of martyrs? And I made mention that John was the only one that wasn't martyred? Well, that's because the Lord had plans for him. I've had the privilege of actually being on the island of Patmos. Um, And John is there and he has this vision and the Lord appears to him in chapter one. And the key to the whole book is in verse 19. He tells John to write the things which you have seen. Well, what has he seen? Well, he's seen this vision of the Lord. Write it down, John, that's chapter one. And then write the things which are. Now that would be present tense. And when John was alive, they were living in the the church age. So for John, that would have been present tense. And so what we have in chapters two and three are seven letters to seven churches. And um, that's the second division to the book of Revelation. And then it says, and then write to things which will take place after this. After what? After the church age. Do you know that today is Pentecost? How did the, when did the church begin? At Pentecost. Ooh, that makes me think. And if it wasn't for the scripture that says no man knows the day or the hour, I'd be looking up. <laughs> we don't know the day or the hour. But I can tell you, my friends, it is so late right now with what's going on. 
the plans that I could get sidetracked real easy. I got to be very careful. Um, the, the Ezekiel 38 war is about to break out. We're taking out, and the largest military exercises in Israel's history is taking place as I speak, with hundreds of jets mobilizing, and um, many are projecting this isn't going to be a military exercise at all. It could actually be the real deal. And if we go out and start taking out nuclear plants in um, Iran, I can see the hook being put into Putin's mouth and being brought down. He goes down. Remember the, the Bible says, I'm against the Ogag, chief prince of Magog. So what we're seeing and what a lot of people believe, we're already in World War III. A break, here I go, I'm getting sidetracked. <laughs> um, uh, just this morning, or yesterday morning, uh, because um, Biden is sending long-range missiles over to um, Ukraine. And um, Putin has already said that's crossing a red line. We have openly admitted that we are actively engaged in the war in Ukraine. That was also a red line that Putin says, if you do that, um, you're going to enter a war that's not going to be winnable. All that to say this, it's very, very late. So it's interesting to me that it's Pentecost today, and the church began at Pentecost, and the church will end at the rapture. Um, when the rapture takes place, the church age, chapters two and three, comes to an end, and now the rest of the book, then he says, write the things that will be after that. After what? After the church age, which is chapter four. You'll notice if those of you who have red letter Bibles, no more red. It goes to black because we're out of the church age. So there's the division to the book of Revelation. Chapter one, write the things you've seen. You saw Jesus. Write it down, John. Okay, then write the things that are. You're living in the church age. Write seven letters to seven churches. He does. And then in chapter four, it says, after these things, the Greek word there is metatonta. After what things? After the church age. After the church age, we, I think chapter four, verse one, is a picture of the rapture. After these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice I heard was like, like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, let's just stop for a second. We always say we're waiting to hear that trumpet blast. I think this scripture right here tells us it sounds like a trumpet, but it's actually a voice that says, come up here. I wish I could hear those words today. <laughs> Come up here. Yeah, go ahead and say it. Amen. <laughs> Come up here. So I believe this is a, a picture where he's taken. And I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in the appearance like an emerald. Well, that sounds like what we just read in the Old Testament. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 
sitting elders clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the thrones proceeded lightning and thunder and voices. Again, what we read in the Old Testament. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. These are reference to the wheels that were full of eyes in the Old Testament, but we're getting a little bit more clarity, I think, as John is writing this down. He's referring to the same things that Isaiah and Ezekiel saw. Um, But what's intriguing to me here, it says, in the midst of the throne. Well, how could they be in the midst of the throne if someone's sitting on the throne? Can you see why Paul came back and said, I can't put it in human words, it's not possible. I can't describe it in human words. Um, And all around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like a calf. The third living creature had a face of a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Now, these aren't necessarily the same um, depictions that we read in the Old Testament. And if you ask me why, I will say, I don't know. (laughs) And the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they did not rest day or night saying, holy, 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 exactly what we read in the Old Testament. Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, then the 24 elders fell down before him who sits on the throne and worshiped him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So we have a New Testament picture that as John is taken up into heaven, he describes the throne room and the cherubim, or the four living creatures, Zoa actually is the terminology um, of these creatures. Okay, now we're going to go from these visions of heaven to the new Jerusalem. Turn with me to John chapter 14. John 14. I want to make a simple point here. We'll just read the first three verses. I'm going to read the first part of this a couple times. Let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. We live in troubled times, and I know many troubled people. And I know I say this often, but I really don't know how people make it through the times in which we live. We see the writing on the wall. There's people who actually think that we're going to recover from all this. There's no way we're going to recover from all this. 
And it's uh, when we um, digest it and let it sink in, you can, your heart can be troubled. I know people that are losing their jobs. Um, I know it's really affecting, um, we got a couple of truckers in, a, in the fellowship and they're giving me updates. It says it's only a matter of time. Um, uh, all, the, all the fires that are happening at, at food, processes, food processing plants around the country. This is all prearranged and it's not going back. And I think um, the globalists have to have this war. Here I go, getting sidetracked again. They have to have this war. Why do they have to have this war? Because there's no way they would ever win an election fairly, the Democrats. They have to, do, they have, to have a war so that they can declare martial law. And if they can declare martial law, then they'll they'll start to do what they're doing in Canada right now with Trudeau. They're, they just passed a law where he says, we're um, claiming all of your firearms. What's happening there is coming to a city or town near you. So it's not going back to normal. The reason I give this validity is because this is exactly what God's word says is going to happen. The days are going to get worse and worse, not better and better. These are the beginning of sorrows. And when we get to chapter six, we have the four horsemen and uh, pestilence, the Antichrist, the first one, and then um, um, war, the second one, pale horse um, uh, is, uh, is the last one. And the people that died from the wars and the pestilences and the famines were a quarter of the earth's population. That's exactly what they're saying is gonna be happening right now, exactly. And then it said it, it could even get to be half of the world's population. Well, when you study the trumpet judgments, which are after the seal judgments, it says a third plus a quarter, now you got half of the world's population gone. So why do I look at this with validity? Because the Bible clearly teaches it. Um, Oh, so let not your heart be troubled. God has a plan. God has not appointed you to wrath, but to obtain salvation. Well, what is the book of Revelation? Chapter six, verse 17 says, this is the wrath of the lamb. And um, people who don't like the pre-trib, you say, oh, you pre-tribbers, you just want to get out of here. And I say, you betcha I do. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're trying to escape persecution. no. I get persecuted plenty. All those who live godly in Christ Jesus will what? Suffer persecution. It's not an escape mechanism. It's just that my husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, if I'm the bride of Christ, isn't gonna take me into the great tribulation for a honeymoon. No. So let not your heart be troubled, believers. And the pre-trib rapture is the only one that makes any sense at all and gives any hope. If you're pre-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib, I see no hope or comfort whatsoever. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, it talks about the wrath of the Lamb. And then it says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. I find plenty of comfort knowing that the Lord is gonna take his bride out before all this hits the fan. Good place for an amen. All right, let's finish the rest of it. I got through four, four words. Let not five, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would go, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I want to explain the difference between the heaven that Isaiah and um, Ezekiel saw and the difference between that and the new Jerusalem. Because here, it is in the future tense where the Lord says, I'm going to go, future tense, and prepare a place for you. That where I am, you may be also. So I want to make a distinction that... um, Um, I made reference to it earlier that um, this is not heaven, this is a new Jerusalem. It is actually a city. Um, Let's go from here to that city in Revelation chapter 21. We are now through the tribulation. We are through the 1,000 year millennial reign. We're through the great white throne judgment. That's how chapter 20 ends. And it refers to the second death. Verse 14 of uh, chapter 20 says, then death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone who is not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now we enter into eternity in 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away and there was no more sea. So for all your surfers, you're out of luck. No more sea doesn't say there's the mountains that have snow on them, though, for you who like to just downhill ski. But as we enter this here, um, John says, Then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice, from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying and there shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, it is done. What does that make you think of? Makes you think of, it is finished. So the Lord repurchased this planet, but he never took claim to it until he, he has finished all that he had preordained to do. And now that's done. Now we're entering eternity. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give of the fountains of the waters of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, 
unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexual, immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Does the Bible talk about hell? Sure does. Does it talk about how long it is? Sure does. It's forever and ever. God had promised Abraham a land forever and David a throne forever. Now as we were finishing up the book of Ezekiel at men's prayer, it kept referring to this prince that um, um, was ruling during um, the millennial period of time and um, we thought it was the Lord but the more we read into it, we read that this prince had children. So it wasn't, and I said it could be a reference to David because I know that the Lord promised that he would sit on the throne. And um, I said off the top of my head, I can't give you exactly where the scriptures were, but somebody, was it you, Fernando, that picked it up? It was who? Ed, it was you. He said, I, I know where those scriptures were, so we, we went to them, but here's another one right here. God did promise David a throne forever. So it could be the millennium, because the millennium's only a thousand years. It has to be during this time. So God promised a, a land forever uh, to Abraham and David, a throne forever, uh, as prophesied a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. That's Daniel 2, verse 44. The new earth will see the total fulfillment of these prophecies. Um, heavenly does not mean they were going to heaven but that heaven was coming down to this earth. And this is what it means when we pray the Lord's Prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. It's really the disciples' prayer. Thy kingdom come. Well, that's what we're praying. This is a kingdom coming and now entering and being in this new Jerusalem. And we get that from... Uh, the first eight verses here is a description of the Lord uh, being with us and it is done. And now from verses nine through 21, we're going to have a description of the new Jerusalem. And as I'm reading, I'm gonna put something up on the screen and then I'll come back and talk about it. So guys, you can go ahead and put up um, uh, that on the screen. But let's look at verse nine. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, come and I will show you, notice, the bride and the lamb's wife. Interesting way to describe the city. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God having the glory of God, and her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates, and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. 
three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. And the city is laid out as a square and the length is as great as its breadth And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs in length. Its length and breadth and height are equal. You have a square, approximately somewhere between 1,400 and 15 um, miles. How how far here to Denver? I'm just taking a guess. Let's let's say that's how far it is to Denver. And so imagine a wall being that long, going that way, then go down 1,500 miles down to Mexico, then 1,500 miles back across uh, um, till you have this square here. But then um, we read that the city, verse 14, the construction of the wall was of jasper and the city was pure gold like clear glass, translucent gold. And the foundation of the wall of the city was adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chaldonia, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardinox, the sixth sardis, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth christophras, and the eleventh jathan, and the twelfth amethyst. So every one of the foundations was... Um, these different uh, colored stones. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Well, that's where you get the definition, the pearly gates. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Okay, I'm gonna stop right there. And uh, I can put this on the screen. Where I got this from was from J. Vernon McGee. Um, what we read in verses 9 through 21 is the whole city is like a precious gem. The gem is likened unto a jasper stone. The modern jasper is a multicolored quartz stone. The stone refers to here cannot be that, for this stone is not opaque. And um, it is more than likely in the Hebrew here, it would be an opal or a diamond or a topaz. But the stone is transparent and gleaming, which suggests one of these stones, most likely the diamond, seems to fit the description better than any other stone known to man. The similarity of the Hebrew word for crystal in Ezekiel 1 verse 22 to the Hebrew word for ice, helps to strengthen this view. The New Jerusalem, catch this, is a diamond in a gold mountain. Uh, mount, mounting. Uh, the city is the engagement ring of the bride. In fact, it is the wedding ring. It is a symbol of the betrothed and wedding of the Church of Christ. I got this from... J. Vernon McGee, 
he actually hired some mathematicians. And he wanted to know if indeed that it is a, a cube, that what would the circumference be if it had a circle around it that would be made up of this diamond? Because everything that we look at when we look out in the universe, you don't see any square stars, do you? They're all like this. And so he asked these mathematicians to come up with what would the circumference need to be to touch all four corners, and they came up with a circumference of 8,164 miles. Um, uh, I personally, and then the diameter is 2,600 miles, and again, the height and width and breadth are 1,500 miles. I personally believe that this is the case where you have the gold in the city with the different foundations. And the beauty of this, let's go to verse 22. And we'll leave, we'll leave that up, but um, these were the circumference that um, McGee came up with. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple And the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it, and the Lamb is its light. The word light um, comes from a Greek word for source of light. The city is a light giver. It does not reflect light as does the moon, nor does it generate light by physical combustion like the sun, but it originates light and the source of light. The presence of God in Christ gives explanation to this as he declares, I am the light of the world. So imagine this incredibly beautiful um, city with all these precious gems, and then at the very center of it would be the light light source that would go outward. And this, is, this would be something so incredibly beautiful as it goes through all these precious um, layers of stones. And the, and the beauty of it would just be um, just overwhelming. Well, you got a place there. The Lord says, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many mansions. I wonder what mine looks like. I think when I see it, I'm going to go, that's exactly what I wanted. (laughs) Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you your heart's desire. My friends, this is not home. And the longer we stay around here, the more we want out of here. And you need to know that he has prepared a place for you, so don't let your heart be troubled. And um, the responsibilities that we'll have throughout here, you need to know that it says a new heaven and a new earth. There is a distinction um, in verses uh, 24 through 27 here, and it says, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in it, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory unto it. Wait a second. I thought we're in eternity. Isn't everybody in heaven? No, there's a new heaven and a new earth and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. This is for the bride of Christ. 
uh, which there's a difference. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, there will be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations. So evidently there's gonna be nations on this new earth. But there will be no means, there will by no means enter anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Our attention has already been directed to the fact that a redeemed remnant of Israel makes regular visits to the city of God, in verse 24. Another group is identified who comes into city to bring their glory and honor. Now these are the redeemed Gentile nations which will occupy the earth together with Israel for eternity. These nations, like Israel, do not belong to the church for they are redeemed after the church is removed from the earth. You see, people get saved during that thousand-year period of time. But we're raptured out before that. So there'll be Gentiles, saved Gentiles on the earth, and saved Israelites or Jews on the earth, and they will bring, they'll come and go as they want to, and bring their glory and honor into it, as it says here. Um, These nations, like Israel, do not belong to the church. They are uh, redeemed after the church is removed from the earth, or before the church came into existence. They come as visitors to the city. They come as worshipers. In Hebrews 12, 22, we are told they also present an innumerable company of angels who evidently constitute what they call the servant class or whatever. Um, Everybody, you know you have a garden angel? That's scriptural. Everybody that's born again has a garden angel. Um, uh, the scriptures says everyone that um, uh, has been born again has um, an angel has been assigned to you Uh, there have been times when I wonder where mine was when I was in some sort of difficulty (laughs) taking a nap (laughs) sleeping (laughs) the city is a cosmopolitan in character all nationalities meet there Um, the created intelligence of God walks the street of the new Jerusalem. So we have heaven coming down into and we now enter eternity. Very little is said about heaven throughout eternity. But I want to close by looking at the last couple verses of 2 Corinthians 12 and Put this in context. Remember what Paul's trying to accomplish here. We got really sidetracked and went into an in-depth study of what does heaven, the third heaven look like and what does the new Jerusalem look like. But why is Paul talking about it? Remember the context is he wants to tell them not only the suffering and everything he went through, but look, I've been to heaven. I can tell you what it looks like. He's using it as an argument to persuade this minority that still don't want anything to do with him. So he says, I know a man about 14 years ago, and whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but I got to go and see and hear things that no man can put into words. So we got four, five, and six to finish up, but I wanted to close by keeping you mindful of the many things and all that Paul would do 
just to help these that were having a hard time with them. What's your point, Dwight? If Paul would go through all this to minister to people who didn't want anything to do with them, shouldn't we be doing the same thing? And um, by any means possible, uh, thinking about, Lord, show me how to do it. Um, I'm sure this is what Paul was doing. So he talks about his apostleship, he talks about the judgment seat of Christ, he talks about the bride of, of, uh, uh, the, bride of the Lamb. So here we read in verse four, and this is where we'll close it up, or five, of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool. For I will speak the truth, but I forbear lest someone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. So in context, as we close up this morning, um, an exhortation to me, an exhortation to you. My friends, you know some really nice people that are gonna go to hell. Are you doing, and this isn't meant in any way, shape, or form uh, to be trying to lay a guilt trip on, on people. No, Paul said it's the love of the Lord that compels us to do what we do. And we should love people enough to warn them and say, I know you don't believe in heaven and I don't believe in hell, but um, would you sit down and watch this video with Dr. Rollins that you can get on YouTube of people who've actually been there? And maybe it will scale the hell out of them or maybe into them. And um, when you hear, this was a very passive testimony that you heard just 10 minutes. Many of them will make your hair stand up and um, you don't want to go there. And it's forever and ever and ever. Paul's aware of that and he's going to do what's ever necessary. He'll pull out every stop possible. Think of anything, everything and anything he can think of to try to get through these stubborn, thick-headed people that don't want to listen to him. He looks past all that and um, to the point where he's, next week we'll talk about um, the thorn in the flesh that he went through, which is really switching gears again. But with that, let's stand and say and pray. Lord, we thank you that you tell us, let not your hearts be troubled. That in that you've gone and you're going to go to this place that's been prepared for us. Lord, we thank you for this eternal city where it'll be our forever address and where we will live forever. For whatever reason, you've chosen not to get into a lot of the details of what we're gonna be up to, but I'm sure it's not sitting on some cloud with a harp. I'm sure it'll be a lot more interesting than that. But we thank you that um, your word gets into a lot of detail of those things that you've prepared for us. And for this, Lord, we're truly grateful and thankful. In Jesus' name I pray and all God's people said, amen. Amen.